Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. The industrial era was defined by the need to know everything. The new industrial revolution is defined by the need to learn, unlearn and relearn without inflexibility and attachment. What are the human capacities that prepare our people for this type of constructive transformation? Which intelligences will become increasingly relevant as we move into the age of AI and how do we construct the learning culture to support their development? To help us answer these questions, we are joined today by Simon Ashton, business psychologist, trainer, certified coach, over 15 years of experience in L&D. At Phoenix Leaders, Simon works with clients across a broad range of sectors, applying strategies from the fields of neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, and the social sciences. Simon, welcome. Hello. Great to have you in the room. Thank you for having me. We were actually speaking off air about how people enter the marketplace, the job market, uh, with the skills that they step out from business schools, for example. And they're often these badges of honor that mm -hmm. they wear, um, outstanding institutions that they've qualified or graduated from. The question that hangs over increasingly over those qualifications is, are they the right type of qualification? Not so much in terms of the academic credentials, but rather the skills that the graduates have learned in their actual time. And is this something that you see regularly in your work, a deficit or even a surplus of these kind of skills? I think that universities, business schools, whether you're looking at a master's or an MBA, I think we still focus very heavily on technical skills, mm -hmm. technical competency, which is obviously still massively important in order to be excellent in your role. However, I think that those institutions, be it UK or abroad, still miss the softer skills. Mm -hmm. And let's mm -hmm. call it softer skills, although softer skills isn't always the word that organizations like to use mm -hmm. because I think we're still heavily focused on IQ mm -hmm. rather than maybe some of the other intelligences that you mentioned mm -hmm. in your build-up. But I think that organizations, we're still very much blinded by institutions that people maybe have been to mm -hmm. and our biases kick in around those institutions as well. But the skills, I think, interpersonal, intrapersonal, relationship building, relating to other human beings is one of the key mm -hmm. focuses, I believe. Mm -hmm. So am, am I understanding correctly, we're talking a lot there in the, in the region of emotional intelligence? Yeah, I think so. If we look at the World Economic Forum and the, the research and the study that they completed around skills from 2015 to 2020, emotional intelligence didn't even feature in the 2015 skill sets. Mm -hmm. In 2020, it jumped in at number six. Mm -hmm. I think if we're talking about emotional intelligence moving forward in the years, is that going to creep further up the ranking? Personally, I believe it will be. And I think that by 2025, maybe that's number two or number three. Mm -hmm. So interesting findings and interesting that the World Economic Forum have recognized that already. So this isn't a new conversation, right? I mean, the conversation <laughs> no, no. about emotional intelligence no. has been going on for some time. The conversation about IQ being a redundant measurement of human potential has been going on for some time. Learning and development functions with organizations have been working on, you know, inverted commas, softer skills, yeah. whether they call them those or not, for some time. So 
in your opinion, what to what do we attribute this lag if there still hasn't been that much of a shift? Now, so a very brief history of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go back to the 1960s where emotional intelligence was there. It just hadn't been nationally named. Mm-hmm. In 1990, Salavoy and Mayer, they actually coined the term emotional intelligence. So it's not new in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. However, realistically, do organizations truly know what EI means? And I think that HR and leadership functions, yes, emotional intelligence is a regular buzzword, a a line that is used regularly. But actually, if you drop that then down through the layers in organizations, do the people right at the bottom, which is who the the workers, the people who actually deliver maybe the the products of the customer, whatever it may be, do they actually know what emotional intelligence actually is? So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's this disconnect between, I suppose, the learning product of EI and the genuine understanding and manifestation of it in a practical way yeah. in the working environment. Yeah. And you mentioned the the kind of the, the, you know, all the way down to the lower levels of the organization, if we're looking at it from a hierarchical point of view. Do you see a similar pattern in the leadership levels and the executive levels? I think that we are still, and this may be controversial, but I still think we're in a leadership function away from those who know it. We're still looking at what can we produce? What? How intelligent is this human being? What are the cognitive capabilities of this person? That's going to generate performance. Mm. And I think that EI is one of those growth mindset, another term that is used freely. Mm. But actually, what does it mean? Mm. How does it impact me? How does it make me better? Why do I need to know these things? Mm. And I think it's about communicating what actually EI is and how it is going to impact the leadership function. Because leaders make organizations. Leaders impact on all the people that they work with, the people in their teams. Leaders need to understand EI. Again, if you surveyed maybe 100 leaders in an organization, would they know what EI actually is? Mm-hmm. It would be an interesting study. That would be an interesting study. My guess is that many would have heard the term. Many would be able to give you some form of definition. If I'm hearing you correctly, though, that still leaves this deficit between understanding, to whatever degree that is, and actual impact yeah. in the workplace. So that impact, I'm, I'm guessing, is related to behavior and action and some form of evidence in performance. Yeah. yeah. A really simple exercise, an activity I do within a, a coaching setting and John Whitmore from Sir John Whitmore, mm-hmm. coaching expert. Something that I picked up was that if you're going to talk about EI, and let's break it down, make it really simple. What does EI actually mean? And for me, it's you give the example of, think of somebody when you were a child, an older person that you looked up to, that you love spending time with. How do they make you feel? What did you do around them? And what did they do to produce the emotions, the feelings? And I think the people that you love spending time with tended to give you space, allow you to project your own thoughts, allowed you to feel trusted, you had self-belief. And I think if we're going to talk about AI, let's keep it really simple. What are those people? So the people in organizations, leaders, leaders, if you're working with them, will make you feel that. They will give you the space. They will challenge you. Mm. They will build your confidence, and but they will not shout at you or argue with you. Mm-hmm. So let's keep it, for me, keep it simple. I think the other thing that we need to think about is bring the neuroscience into this, Mm -hmm. bring the brain into this, because people actually understand things that are explained to them in a more scientific way than maybe a psychological, and at times can be seen as fluffy Mm -hmm. constructs. Mm -hmm. So neuroscience 
offers a, a really useful bridge between those kind of more technical outlooks, the kind of the more harder skills that we've, that we've been speaking about, and those softer perspectives, and adds some weight and credibility to the idea of softer skills and makes it more digestible within most organizations. Agreed. Because something that struck me as you're speaking, I mean, I understand there may be perhaps a lower emphasis on softer skills, especially as we move into this increasingly technical environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's so much in public dialogue and business development and about digital transformation. We're entering into this age of AI. I mean, there's a whole lot there that goes on red alert about do I have the skills to step into this unknown world? Yeah. And that from leadership level all the way down through the organization. It's definitely easy to understand why there is this increasing bias, perhaps, towards technical proficiency to equip the workforce for these times. But in fact, it's not really a one or the other, is it? No. I mean, we need these human skills to really support constructive technical development. 100%. I think, I mean, talking about future-proofing leaders, and if we're, if we're looking at the next 10, 15 years, and AI will become a force in the next 10 or 15 years. But ultimately, what we know about AI already is that it can do the the intelligence part. So about the, the analyzing, the planning, the crunching of data, mm. humans aren't actually needed for that nowadays. I mean, we can, consultants who are in, who are in that world of preparing and, and analyzing information for their clients, actually AI will probably take that away from them in terms of that role. The key role is about relating to other human beings. And I think that's why this emphasis on AI becoming more and more prominent is that actually we need to, we need to be better at being human beings. Mm. And that may sound silly, but it's, we need to be better at, being, at relating to others and because that's going to be our point of difference for the future. Mm. Is, uh, is there not in there sort of the nub of this problem, which is that it's far easier to learn something technical than it is to face the parts of yourself that make it more difficult to be a better human being. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you look at stress and bringing stress into it in terms of if you measured what makes people most stressful in their working day, there are a number of surveys out there that show that actually managing other human beings, mm -hmm. relating to other human beings, is the most stressful. So those skills that help one manage those in a constructive way, especially with other people, are going to become increasingly important. So... This doesn't sound like rocket science. I mean, why do you think it is then that there is this inertia in really investing in the development of these skills in the workplace? Or is it just that we're not doing it the best way? The difficulty is, A, changing habits, first of all. And that, as we know within the learning arena, how do you change somebody from doing one set of behaviors, attitudes, to changing them to another way? And it's painting the, I think it's the why. Mm -hmm. Talk about Simon Sinek, and he's, mm -hmm. he was very good at creating this start with why. People need to understand, why is it better for me to be more human? What's it going to do for me in terms of my own personal goals and mm -hmm. achievements for me mm -hmm. to change this habit? And I think whenever we're starting a program, we always really put a lot of emphasis on program launch, trying to create that message and understanding of why the, the individual is coming on this program, why we're delivering these skills, why is it going to make your life better? Why are you going to be more productive, more successful? And I think organizations maybe miss the opportunity to present the why mm -hmm. in the first place. I think we go straight into, these are skills you require, let's go for it. But actually the really savvy organizations who link in the values, link in the bigger picture, the, the vision, the purpose of the organization, and can align that to, to a team's 
focus mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I think to get to link it to an individual, that's quite difficult. But I think if you can get it into a team and a culture, then you're winning. Mm-hmm. Culture, the big word. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that is the big win, isn't it? Eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someone positioned it, I thought, really smartly the other day. Um, a guest on, on the show, she said, um, culture is values made manifest as behavior. Mm-hmm. And and I think that really neatly sums it up. Because to go back to what we were saying earlier, to see that real physical evidence of somebody really getting, for example, emotional intelligence, this is not something that you mark on a scorecard. You know it when you see it, mm. when you have role models or, you know, especially members of leadership operating yeah. in an emotionally yeah. intelligent way. I think that your point about leadership and role modeling is vital, mm-hmm. whether it's emotional intelligence, whether it's psychological safety, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. whatever creative problem solving, critical thing, whatever it is, role modeling is, and again, going back to the brain, we mimic. We mimic other human beings because it's what we're programmed to do to keep us safe, to keep us in the group, to allow us to survive. How do we get to that place in an organization? So I'm obviously not asking for, you know, the three-step roadmap to a perfect, you know, emotionally intelligent organizational mm-hmm. culture. But from your experience in L&D, the L&D function often has very specific challenges to playing an active enough role or yeah. having enough of a remit. If you're a leader and have a number of people or have a team, you could start with your own pocket. You could start with working towards a learner mindset, a growth mindset very early on. I think you can't change the culture of an organization because it's very hard to swim upstream and and change the direction of a business, but you can change your own little world, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, and you can change your own, the team that you work with. And and I think the other thing is you don't eat an elephant in one go. Mm -hmm. Let's do it in little chunks, Mm -hmm. little bits. Do we try it in meetings? And when we get together as a group, first of all, how do we set a learner mindset in our in our decision-making meetings? Can we allow people to ask questions, have a voice, allow that learning to start in an open forum, mm-hmm. allowing people to have that, that free, that voice, that ability to answer their own problems and then guide them? Mm-hmm. That, I found that a lot in my coaching and the coaching practice in that we're constantly trying to pressure time, resources, budget. I need to answer the question now. I need to get the sort of solution now how do you people get better mm-hmm. if you're just doing your, their job for them? So Simon, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, with one last question. Yep. If we were to look at one thing that you think individuals would gain the most from learning to keep them, I suppose, future-proofed in an ongoing way, what should we be learning in organizations? Yeah, yeah, put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so go back to the, the World Economic Forum 2015, 2020, top of the list, both years, uh, both 15 and 2020, is complex problem solving. Mm. And I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things that will probably maintain its, its momentum and its focus. How do we get to the answers? And it will also mean that the EI and the questioning skills and active listening and people, that all links into it. But as a human being, how do we solve the problems that are getting more and more complicated all the time because Mm -hmm. we're getting AI thrown into the mix? But I think that what we really could do better is just take that moment to work as an individual or as a group and frame what is it that we're actually trying to solve here? What is the problem that is going to cause us the headache longer term not just now because we need to be seen to be doing and then it goes back to questions we ask you that we have to it's framestorming 
framing lots of questions to frame the problem mm. rather than brainstorming questions to frame the problem. I um, I love that. And it reminds me of an old military saying that a friend of mine shared with me recently, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And it really captures so much of that for me, which is uh, if you have essentially the self-awareness, you know, all these faculties you were describing earlier, the self-awareness, I suppose the presence, the courage to take time initially to slow down and really hone in on what you need to achieve. Mm. The outcomes in the end are almost always not just better, significantly better and sustainably better. Mm. And I think that we're so primed to say go to solution and go to doing that actually that's because we don't have psychologically safe environments or organizations i think that that is the starting point to, to great problem solving mm. having the psychological safety to have a voice in what you think might be a, a unique scenario that we haven't thought about before yeah simon thank you thank you for no thank you for, for showing up today in the way that you have it was a, a great pleasure to have you in the studio thank you and uh, thanks so much for your input really enjoyed it me too thank you very much cheers Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring. Headspring.